Section six of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume six by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Elizabeth, Chapter two, Part three. The letter of the commissioners to the Queen is dated February eleventh, which was a Sunday, contrary to the assertions of Fox and Hollingshed. They remained at Ashridge the whole of that day and night and it was not till monday morning the twelfth that they proceeded to remove elizabeth it was the day appointed for the execution of the lady jane grey and lord guilford dudley and even the strong mind and lion-like spirit of elizabeth must have quailed at the appalling nature of her own summons to the metropolis and the idea of commencing her journey in so ominous an hour thrice she was near fainting as she was led between two of her escort to the royal litter which the queen had sent for her accommodation her bodily weakness or some other cause appears to have caused a deviation from the original program of the journey for the places where she halted were not the same as those specified by the commissioners in their letter to the queen she reached redburn in a feeble condition the first night on the second she rested at sir ralph rollett's house at st albans on the third at mr dodd's at memes on the fourth at highgate where she remained at mr cholmley's house a night and day according to hollinshed but most probably it was longer as she did not enter london till the twenty-third of february and noel in a letter dated the twenty-first makes the following report of her condition to his own court while the city is covered with gibbets and the public buildings crowded with the heads of the bravest men in the kingdom who by the by had given but an indifferent sample of their valour the princess elizabeth for whom no better fate is foreseen is lying ill about seven or eight miles from hence so swollen and disfigured that her death is expected he expresses doubts whether she would reach london alive notwithstanding this piteous description of her sufferings and prospects his excellency in another place calls the indisposition of elizabeth a favorable illness and the phrase has led some persons into the notion that her sickness was feigned for the purpose of exciting popular sympathy but he certainly means merely to intimate that it occurred at a seasonable time for her and was probably the means of saving her from the same punishment that had just been inflicted on her youthful kinswoman lady jane grey that elizabeth was suffering severely both in mind and body at this terrific crisis there can be no doubt and if she made the most of her illness to gain time and delay her approach to the dreaded scene of blood and horror which the metropolis presented in consequence of the recent executions no one can blame her but when the moment came for her public entrance into london as a prisoner of state her firmness returned and the spirit of the royal heroine triumphed over the weakness of the invalid and the terrors of the woman her deportment on that occasion is thus finely described by an eye-witness who thirsted for her blood simon renaud the spanish ambassador in a letter to her great enemy the emperor charles v dated february twenty fourth fifteen fifty four the lady elizabeth says he arrived here yesterday dressed all in white surrounded with a great company of the queen's people besides her own attendants she made them uncover the litter in which she rode that she might be seen by the people 
her countenance was pale and stern her mien proud lofty and disdainful by which she endeavoured to conceal her trouble a hundred gentlemen in velvet coats formed a sort of guard of honour for elizabeth on this occasion next her person and they were followed by a hundred more in coats of fine red cloth guarded with black velvet this was probably the royal livery the road on both sides the way from highgate to london was thronged with gazing crowds some of whom wept and bewailed her it must indeed have been a pageant of most tragic interest considering the excited state of the public mind for suffolk had been executed that morning and it was only eleven days since the young lovely and interesting lady jane grey had been brought to the block many persons in that crowd remembered the execution of elizabeth's mother queen anne boleyn not quite seventeen years ago and scarcely anticipated a better fate for her whom they now saw conducted through their streets a guarded captive having arrayed herself in white robes emblematic of innocence her youth her pallid cheek and searching glance appealed to them for sympathy and it might be for succour but neither arm nor voice was raised in her defence in all that multitude and this accounts for the haughty and scornful expression which renaud observed in her countenance as she gazed upon them perhaps she thought with sarcastic bitterness of the familiar proverb a little help is worth a deal of pity the cavalcade passed through smithfield and fleet street to whitehall between four and five in the afternoon and entered the palace through the garden whatever might be her inward alarm elizabeth assumed an intrepid bearing her cheek was pale but resolved and high were the words of her lip and the glance of her eye she boldly protested her innocence and demanded an interview with her sister the queen on the plea of mary's previous promise never to condemn her unheard mary declined seeing her and she was conducted to a quarter of the palace at westminster from which neither she nor her servants could go out without passing through the guards six ladies two gentlemen and four servants of her own retinue were permitted to remain in attendance on her person the rest of her train were sent into the city of london and lodged there it was on the fidelity and moral courage of these persons that the life of elizabeth depended and it is certain that several of them were implicated in the conspiracy courtney her affianced husband had been arrested on the twelfth of february in the house of the earl of sussex and was safely lodged in the bell tower and subjected to daily examinations he had previously given tokens of weakness and want of principle sufficient to fill every one with whom he had been politically connected with apprehension yet he seems to have acted honourably with regard to elizabeth for none of his admissions tended to implicate her nothing could be more agonizing than the state of suspense in which for three weeks elizabeth remained at whitehall while her fate was debated by her sister's privy council fortunately for her this body was agitated with jealousies and divided interests one party relentlessly urged the expediency of putting her to death and argued against the folly of sparing a traitoress who had entered into plots with foreign powers against her queen and country lord arundel and lord paget were the advocates of these ruthless counsels which however really emanated from the emperor charles v who considered elizabeth in the light of a powerful rival to the title of the bride-elect of his son philip 
and he labored for her destruction in the same spirit that his grandfather ferdinand had made the execution of the unfortunate earl of warwick one of the secret articles of the marriage treaty of catherine of aragon and arthur prince of wales besides this political animosity charles entertained a personal hatred to elizabeth because she was the daughter of anne boleyn whose fatal charms had been the cause of so much evil to his beloved aunt bishop gardiner who was at that time opposed to the spanish party acted in this instance as the friend of elizabeth and courtney he contended that there was no proof of a treasonable correspondence between them during the late insurrections alleging the residence of courtney in the queen's household at st james's palace and elizabeth's dangerous sickness at ashridge as reasons why they were not and could not have been actually engaged in acts of treason whatever might have been their intentions in this matter gardiner acted in the true spirit of a modern politician he threw all the weight of his powerful talents and influence into the scale of mercy and justice not for the sake of a good cause he advocated but because it afforded him an opportunity of contending with his rivals on vantage ground the murderous policy of spain is thus shamelessly avowed by renaud in one of his letters to his imperial master the queen he says is advised to send her elizabeth to the tower since she is accused by wyatt named in the letters of the french ambassador and suspected by her own counsel and it is certain that the enterprise was undertaken in her favor assuredly sire if they do not punish her and courtney now that the occasion offers the queen will never be secure for i doubt that if she leaves her in the tower when she goes to meet the parliament some treasonable means will be found to deliver her or courtney or perhaps both and then the last error will be worse than the first the council was in possession of two notes addressed to elizabeth by wyatt the first advising her to remove to donnington which was close to their headquarters the second after her neglecting to obey the queen's summons to court informing her of his victorious entry into southwark three dispatches of noel to his own government had been intercepted and deciphered which revealed all the plans of the conspirators in her favor noel too and that made the matter worse had married one of her maids of honor which circumstance of course afforded a direct facility for more familiar intercourse than otherwise could publicly have taken place between the disaffected heiress of the crown and the representative of a foreign power in addition to these presumptive evidences a letter supposed to have been written by her to the king of france had fallen into the hands of the queen the duke of suffolk doubtless with a view to the preservation of his own daughter lady jane grey had declared that the object of the conspiracy was the dethronement of the queen and the elevation of elizabeth to her place wyatt acknowledged that he had written more than one letter to elizabeth and charged courtney face to face with having first suggested the rebellion sir james crofts confessed that he had conferred with elizabeth and solicited her to retire to donnington lord russell that he had privately conveyed letters to her from wyatt and another prisoner that he had been privy to a correspondence between carew and courtney respecting the intended marriage between the nobleman and the princess in short a more disgusting series of treachery and cowardice never was exhibited than on this occasion and if it be true that there is honor among thieves that is to say an observance of good faith towards each other in time of peril 
it is certain nothing of the kind was to be found among these confederates who respectively endeavored by the denunciation of their associates to shift the penalty of their mutual offenses to their fellows in misfortune wyatt's first confession was that the seer diosi when he passed through england into scotland with the french ambassador to that country spoke to sir james crofts to persuade him to prevent the marriage of queen mary with the heir of spain to raise elizabeth to the throne marry her to courtney and put the queen to death he also confessed the promised aid that was guaranteed by the king of france to the confederates and the projected invasions from france and scotland we have this morning writes mr secretary bourne travailed with sir thomas wyatt touching the lady elizabeth and her servant sir william st low and your lordship shall understand that wyatt affirmeth his former sayings or depositions and says further that sir james crofts knoweth more if he be sent for and examined whereupon crofts had been called before us and examined and confesseth with wyatt charging st low with like matter and further as we shall declare unto your said lordships wherefore under your correction we think necessary and beseech you to send for mr st low and to examine him or cause him to be sent hither by us to be examined crofts is plain and will tell all the spanish ambassador in his report to the emperor dated march first affirms that crofts had confessed the truth in a written deposition and admitted in plain terms the intrigues of the french ambassador with the heretics and rebels but this deposition has been vainly sought for in the state paper office great pains were taken by the spanish faction to incense the queen to the death against elizabeth renaud even presumed to intimate that her betrothed husband don philip would not venture his person in england till elizabeth and courtney were executed and endeavored by every sort of argument to tempt her to hasten her own marriage by the sacrifice of their lives irritated as mary was against both she could not resolve on shedding her sister's blood she told the subtle statesman that she should act as the law decided on the evidences of their guilt but that the prisoners whose guilt had actually been proved should be executed before she left her metropolis to open her parliament which was summoned to meet at oxford she was in great perplexity in what manner to dispose of elizabeth for her own security before she herself departed from london and she asked the lords of her council one by one if either of them would take charge of that lady they all declined the perilous responsibility and then the stern resolution was adopted of sending her to the tower after a stormy debate in council on the justifiableness of such a measure the truth was gardiner finding himself likely to be left in a minority by his powerful rivals in the cabinet succumbed to their wishes and instead of opposing the motion supported it and kept his chancellorship for a temporary reconciliation was then effected between him and the leaders of the spanish faction arundel paget and petre of which the blood of elizabeth was the intended cement from the moment this trimming statesman abandoned the liberal policy he had for a brief few months advocated he shamed not to become the most relentless and determined of those who sought to bring the royal maiden to the block on the friday before palm sunday he with nine more of the council came into her presence and there charged her both with wyatt's conspiracy and the rising lately made in the west by sir peter carew and others 
and told her it was the queen's pleasure that she should be removed to the tower the name of this doleful prison which her own mother and more recently her cousin lady jane gray had found their next step to the scaffold filled her with dismay i trust said she that her majesty will be far more gracious than to commit to that place a true and most innocent woman that never has offended her in thought word or deed she then entreated the lords to intercede for her with the queen which some of them compassionately promised to do and testified much pity for her case about an hour after four of them namely gardiner the lord steward the lord treasurer and the earl of sussex returned with an order to discharge all her attendants except her gentleman usher three gentlewomen and two grooms of her chamber hitherto elizabeth had been in the honourable keeping of the lord chamberlain no other than her uncle lord william howard and sir john gage but now that a sterner policy was adopted a guard was placed in the two ante-rooms leading to her chamber two lords with an armed force in the hall and two hundred northern white coats in the garden to prevent all possibility of rescue or escape the next day the earl of sussex and another lord of the council announced to her that a barge was in readiness to convey her to the tower and she must prepare to go as the tide served which would tarry for no one this intimation seems to have inspired elizabeth with a determination to outstay it since the delay of every hour was important to her whose fate hung on a balance so nicely poised she implored to see the queen her sister and that request being denied she then entreated for permission to write to her this was peremptorily refused by one of the noblemen who told her that he durst not suffer it neither in his opinion was it convenient but the earl of sussex whose generous nature was touched with manly compassion bent his knee before her and told her she should have liberty to write her mind and swore as he was a true man he would himself deliver it to the queen whatsoever came of it and bring her back the answer elizabeth then addressed with the earnest eloquence of despair the following moving letter to her royal sister taking good care not to bring it to a conclusion till the tide had ebbed so far as it rendered it impossible to shoot the bridge with a barge that turn the lady elizabeth to the queen if ever did try this old saying that a king's word was more than another man's oath i must humbly beseech your majesty to verify it in me and to remember your last promise and my last demand that i be not condemned without answer and due proof which it seems that i now am for without cause proved i am by your counsel from you commanded to go to the tower a place more wanted for a false traitor than a true subject which though i know i deserve it not yet in the face of all this realm it appears proved i pray to god i may die the shamefulest death that any ever died if i may mean any such thing and to this present hour i protest before god who shall judge my truth whatsoever malice shall devise that i never practised counselled nor consented to anything that might be prejudicial to your person any way or dangerous to the state by any means and therefore i humbly beseech your majesty to let me answer afore yourself and not suffer me to trust your counsellors yea and that afore i go to the tower if it be possible if not before i be further condemned howbeit i trust assuredly that your highness will give me leave to do it afore i go 
that thus shamefully I may not be cried out on, as I shall now be, and yea, that without cause. Let conscience move your highness to pardon this my boldness, which innocency procures me to do, together with hope of your natural kindness, which I trust will not see me cast away without desert, which what it is, her desert. I would desire no more of God, but that I truly knew, but which thing I think and believe, you shall never by report know, unless by yourself you hear. I have heard of many in my time cast away, for want of coming to the presence of their prince, and in late days I heard my lord of Somerset say, that if his brother had been suffered to speak with him, he had never suffered, but persuasions were made to him so great, that he was brought in belief, that he could not safely live if the admiral, Lord Thomas Seymour, lived, and that made him give consent to his death. Though these persons are not to be compared to your majesty, yet I pray God, the like evil persuasions persuade not one sister against the other, and all, for that they have heard false report, and the truth not known. Therefore, once again, kneeling with humbleness of heart, because I am not suffered to bow the knees of my body, I humbly crave to speak with your highness, which I would not be so bold as to desire, if I knew not myself most clear, as I know myself most true. And as for the traitor Wyatt, he might, perventure, write me a letter, but on my faith I never received any from him. And as for the copy of the letter sent to the French king, I pray God confound me eternally, if ever I sent him word, message, token, or letter, by any means, and this truth I will stand in till my death. Your Highness's most faithful subject, that hath been from the beginning, and will be to my end, Elizabeth. I humbly crave but only one word of answer from yourself. This letter, written as has been shown, on the spur of the moment, possesses more perspicuity and power than any other composition from the pen of Elizabeth. She had not time to hammer out artificial sentences, so completely entangled with far-fetched metaphors and pedantic quotations, that a commentator is required to construe every one of her ambiguous paragraphs. No such ambiguity is used here, where she pleads for her life in good earnest, and in unequivocal language appeals boldly, from the inimical privy council to her sister's natural affection, and the event proved in the end that she did not appeal in vain. Yet her majesty showed no symptoms of relenting, at the time it was delivered, being exceedingly angry with Sussex for having lost the tide, and, according to Renaud, she rated her counsel soundly for having presumed to deviate from the instructions she had issued. The next tide did not serve till midnight, misgivings were felt, lest some project were in agitation among her friends and confederates, to effect a rescue under cover of the darkness. And so it was decided that they would defer her removal till the following day. This was Palm Sunday, and the council considered that it would be the safest plan to have the princess conveyed to the tower by water during the time of morning service, and on that account the people were strictly enjoined to carry their palms to church. Sussex and the Lord Treasurer were with Elizabeth soon after nine o'clock that morning, and informed her that the time was now come, that her grace must away with them to the tower. She replied, The Lord's will be done. I am contented, seeing as it is the Queen's pleasure. Yet as she was conducted through the garden to the barge, she turned her eyes towards every window in the lingering hope, as it was thought, of seeing someone who would espouse her cause, 
and finding herself disappointed in this, she passionately exclaimed, I marvel what the nobles mean by suffering me, a prince, to be led into captivity, the Lord knoweth wherefore, for myself I do not. Her escort hurried her to the barge, being anxious to pass the shores of London at a time when they would be least likely to attract attention. But in their efforts, not to be too late, they were too early, for the tide had not risen sufficiently high to allow the barge to shoot the bridge, where the fall of the water was so great that the experienced boatmen declined attempting it. The peers urged them to proceed, and they lay hovering upon the water in extreme danger for a time, and at length their caution was overpowered by the imperative orders of the two noblemen, who insisted on their passing the arch. They reluctantly essayed to do so, and struck the stern of the barge against the starling, and not without great difficulty and much peril, succeeded in clearing it. Not one, perhaps, of the anxious spectators, who from the houses which at that time overhung the bridge, beheld the jeopardy of that boat's company, suspected the quality of the pale girl, whose escape from a watery grave must have elicited an ejaculation of thanksgiving from many a kindly heart. Elizabeth objected to being landed at the traitor's gate. Neither well could she, unless she should step into the water over her shoe, she said. One of the lords told her, she must not choose, and as it was then raining, offered her his cloak. She dashed it from her with a good dash, says our author, and as she set her foot on the stairs, exclaimed, here lands as true a subject, being prisoner, as ever landed at these stairs, before thee, O God, I speak it, having no other friend but thee alone. To which the nobles who escorted her replied, If it were so, it was the better for her. When she came to the gate, a number of the warders and servants belonging to the tower were drawn up in rank, and some of them, as she passed, knelt and prayed God to preserve her grace, for which they were afterwards reprimanded. Instead of passing through the gates to which she had been thus conducted, Elizabeth seated herself on a cold damp stone, with the evident intention of not entering a prison which had proved so fatal to her race. Bridges, the lieutenant of the tower, said to her, Madam, you had best come out of the rain, for you sit unwholesomely. Better sit here than in a worse place, she replied, for God knoweth, not I, whither you will bring me. On hearing these words, her gentleman usher burst into a passion of weeping, which she perceiving, chide him for his weakness in thus giving way to his feelings, and discouraging her, whom he ought rather to comfort and support, especially knowing her truth to be such that no man had any cause to weep for her. When, however, she was inducted into the apartment appointed for her confinement, and the doors made fast upon her with locks and bolts, she was sore dismayed, but called for her book, and gathering the sorrowful remnant of her servants round her, begged them to unite with her in prayer for the divine protection and succor. Meantime, the lords of the council who had brought her to the tower proceeded to deliver their instructions to the authorities, there for her safe keeping. But when some measure of unnecessary rigor was suggested by one of the commissioners, the Earl of Sussex, who appears to have been thoroughly disgusted with the ungracious office that had been put upon him and the unmanly conduct of his associates, sternly admonished them in these words let us take heed my lords that we go not beyond our commission for she was our king's daughter and is we know the prince next in blood 
wherefore let us so deal with her now that we have not if it so happen to answer for our dealings hereafter end of section six